0: Well, Jesus said that if a husband loves his wife, he will go snow skiing with her. (laughs) Now, Jesus did not actually say that if there's any uninformed or uninitiated here today. But I'm pretty sure it's a biblical fault that if you love your wife who loves to ski, then you go snow skiing with your wife, never mind the fact that She and her brother are expert skiers that can ski any black diamond in the place where you are, and you've never been on skis. And so there I am, I'm on skis. I had to show you some evidence, this has really nothing to do, maybe a little bit, but not really anything with the sermon. Um, So there I am, I was on skis. That is a bunny slope, that's where I started, that's where I stayed. It started worse than it ended. I was able to stay upright a little bit longer. That is not a smile. That is a grimace. Because of the intense pain, I found my 45-year-old body during this uh, excursion that some call a vacation. (laughs) Vacation. But Jesus said that if you love your wife, you go skiing and you enjoy your anniversary trip and you celebrate to the glory of God. I glorified him all the way back on the plane from Denver. (laughs) Just so you know, we did have a great time. There was some snowmobiling. There was a snowcat ride. There was other parts that were much more enjoyable for the old guy. But at any rate, there you go can't just say you love your wife. You've got to do it. That does have something to do with the sermon. So, anyway, there you go. We're glad to be home. Uh, uh, well, I mean, I'm glad to be home. Betsy wishes we were still in Colorado. But, um, and good to be back with you this morning. What a sweet time of worship we've had already. And uh, so, maybe you've seen this guy before. That's not me. That's Arnold Schwarzenegger, if there's any confusion with the last picture. There was a bodybuilder visiting an African tribe. It wasn't Schwarzenegger. And the tribal chief was just amazed at this guy's physique. So the in, the, this tribal chief there in Africa asked the muscle builder, what do you do with all those muscles? The bodybuilder said, well, it's, it's, it's probably easier to, to show you than to explain it to you. So he started going into all these sorts of different positions uh, showing his physique, he, he flexed the biceps and then he flexed the triceps and then he spun around and flexed his back muscles and his obliques and he just stood there changing poses. And after the presentation was over, the tribal chief said, now, now that's impressive, but I have a second question. What else do you do with all those muscles? Well, the bodybuilder said, that's pretty much it. I work out to pose and compete in posing. And the African chief so wisely and practically said, What a waste. What a waste. Tony Evans says many church folks work out only to pose. They don't work out to use the muscles they've developed. They carry their Bibles, stand during praise and worship, raise their hands to the Lord and absorb the Word of God week after week only to leave church and never use what they've learned. I want to talk to you this morning from James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 about demonic nonsense. Demonic nonsense. And here's the truth I want you to take away with you this morning, among others. If your belief in Jesus does not affect your actions, then you don't really trust Jesus. I believe we'll see that from these verses, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26. And that kind of faith is, in short, demonic nonsense. If your belief in Jesus does not affect your actions, then you don't really trust Jesus. Jesus let's read the text from James chapter 2 verse 14 I'm reading from the NIV What good is it my brothers and sisters James says if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds can such faith save them Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food if one of you says to them go in peace keep warm and be well fed but does nothing about their physical needs what good is it in the same way faith by itself if it is not accompanied by action is dead but someone will say you have faith i have deeds show me your faith without deeds and i will show you my faith by my deeds You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that. And shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did? When she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Wow. Those are some pretty strong words from James, aren't they? I want you to see in this text... James here exposes three kinds of faith. Now, two of them are really one and the same, but we'll break them down. He exposes three kinds of faith in order to help us identify where we stand, where you stand in relation to God. And that's not an insignificant thing. Don't miss the the starkness and the, the, the seriousness of this passage. First of all, James talks about dead faith in verses 14 to 17. Faith with no works is not saving faith. From the New Living Translation, you can see these, the, the, passage, the scriptures I'll be reading from different translations will be on the screen. Verse 14 from the New Living Translation says, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? It's a rhetorical question. The, uh, the assumed answer to that question is what? No. James is trying to make it blatantly obvious that such faith is not saving faith. It's not just that it's a secondary faith or a lesser than faith, it's not saving faith. Verse 14 from the message Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? Again, the assumption, the assumed answer is no. From the um, contemporary English version, what good is it to say that you have faith when you don't do anything to show that you really do have faith? And the answer is it's of no good. Further, it's of no saving good. Pick it up in verse 15 from the New Living Translation. Suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. And then from the message, Peterson translates verse 17 to say, Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? It's just nonsense. It's just blow. It's just smoke. Where'd James get this stuff? Well, certainly it was from Jesus himself. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, then, those, then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to drink, nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, When? In 1 John, John says it this way, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? And what is the answer to that question? It can't be. That's why even Paul in... Galatians, that focuses so much on the free basis of our justification. That's why, even in that letter, Paul says in Galatians 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. It's not about your legalistic works, it's not about earning things by works before a holy God. But what it is about, the only thing that counts, is faith, specifically in Jesus Christ, that expresses itself through love. It's a faith in Jesus that works. It's a faith in Jesus that transforms us to live a life of love even as we have been loved by him. You see, if your belief in Jesus does not affect your actions, then you don't really trust Jesus. It's that simple. Faith without the work, fruit of works of love and service to others is dead. And James says it cannot save. But here's the bad news, it's worse than that. Not only is that a dead faith, secondly this morning, see with me in verses 19 and 20, it's a demonic faith. Faith without works is no more saving faith than the faith of demons. New Living Translation, verse 19. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. A little sarcasm in James's voice in that exclamation. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble with terror. How foolish, can't you see that, the faith, that faith without good deeds is useless? You see, faith without works is not just, as we saw a minute ago, outrageous nonsense. As the message translated in verse 17, faith without works is demonic nonsense. In Mark chapter 1, we learn a little bit about the theology of the demons. In Mark chapter 1, verse 23, it says, Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit, that would be a demon, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And then he says this. He doesn't just know Jesus' name and where he's from. He says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus and the apostles, and 2,000 years of the church in history. We've spent, the the whole mission is to get the nations to to, to see and know that Jesus of Nazareth is the Holy One of God, the Messiah, the only Savior for the world. Right? The demons knew that a long time ago. They've got it. I know who you are, that spirit said to Jesus. You are the Holy One of God. You see, the demons are not atheists. They're not liberals. They're not agnostics. The demons are orthodox. They're monotheists. They're Trinitarian in their theology. And listen, they have a great Christology, a perfect understanding of who Jesus is intellectually. Their theology is better than yours. It's far better than mine. They even bristle with fear before the holiness and the sovereignty of God. So are they saved? I mean, demons can't be saved, can they? Of course not, they're demons. And you see, James' point here is to rattle our cage and wake us up to the reality that we can have a demonic faith. It is no saving faith at all. Their mental assent to good and right theology doesn't include the repentance from sin and trust in Jesus that must come from the heart. The demons are rebels against the God that they understand so very well. And even fear with reference to the coming judgment but their proper theology alone can't save them. Do you you get the point? You can have the greatest knowledge of sound theology and still only have a demonic faith. You can believe all the right stuff from from the Word of God. And if your faith doesn't change your life, It's demonic nonsense. Faith without works is not saving and is no different than the faith of the demons who will eternally inhabit the devil's hell. But then James goes on to describe for us not a dead faith, not a demonic faith. Again, those two are one in the same A dead faith is a demonic faith. A demonic faith is a dead faith. Neither one are saving. It's all one and the same. But he goes on in verses 21 and 26 to describe for us a dynamic faith. This is the real deal. This is saving faith. And what we see in these verses is that faith with works proves itself to be true He gives us two examples of dynamic faith in these verses. The first one is a patriarch. It's old Abraham. Verses 21 to 24. From the New Living Translation, verses 21 to 23. Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham, the patriarch, the father of all the Jews, was shown to be right with God by his actions? when he offered his son Isaac on the altar, you see his faith and his actions work together. His actions made his faith complete. Verses 21 and 22 are a reference to Genesis 22. That's the passage where God told Abraham, go to Mount Moriah and offer your son Isaac on the altar. That's the son that you couldn't have on your own, that I gave you in your old age. It's the miracle child of the new covenant, of the Abrahamic covenant, I want you to go kill that one. I want you to sacrifice him to me on, on an altar at Moriah. And what did Abraham do? He said, Son, let's go. He loaded the wood, he had all the stuff that he needed to, to make the sacrifice. And the Bible says that the boy even said, Father, where's the lamb? He'd been around sacrifices. He knew knew there had to be a sacrifice. Some kind of death had to occur on that altar that they had all the wood for. And Abraham looked at his son he said, The Lord will provide. And he took him and he bound him and he laid him on the altar and he raised the knife, the Bible says. He was ready to kill him. He was ready to obey God. And God stopped him. And he said, for now I know that you fear God. Since you've not withheld your son, your only son, from me. He feared God. He trusted God. And the proof was in his actions. text goes on, and so it happened, just as the Scripture says, Abraham believed God. This is from Genesis 15, quote from Genesis 15. And God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. It's significant that, that we understand the order in which these things occurred. In Genesis 15, Abraham acted on faith. He he trusted the promise of God for an heir. In Genesis 22, seven chapters later, he acted on that trust in God by being willing to kill the very heir that God had given to him by promise and by the power of God, not by the will and the strength and and, and the vitality of man. You see, it should be clear in this passage that James is not confused. And James is not in contradiction with Paul in Galatians, right? It's it's very clear in this passage that the works James is talking about are not works that save, but works that prove salvation. And even when he uses the language of being justified by our works, it's clear you prove your justification by your works. Back to the text, verse 23, the message from, in verse 23 from the message, the full meaning of believe in the scripture sentence, Abraham believed God and was set right with God, includes his action. It's that mesh of believing and acting that got, got Abraham named God's friend. And then in verse 24 from the New Living Translation, so you see, we are shown to be right with God by what we do, not by faith, alone. What is he saying? Is he saying we're, that, we're really, that the basis of our justification is not faith alone? No. Clearly, in the context with all the factors involved here, he's saying this. You can't just say you believe in God and do nothing. Have no fruit to show your faith. Not be changed in life by that faith. And think You're actually justified. If you've truly trusted Jesus, then you will change. Your life will be different. Genesis 22 gave the practical proof of the faith that justified Abraham back in Genesis 15. From the practical perspective, Mount Moriah justified Abraham. That is, it proved that his faith was true and saving. Again, God even said, For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. In Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews had something to say about this. Hebrews 11, verse 17 By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises, that's a reference back to his faith in Genesis 15 was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Now we get an insight into the mind of Abraham on Mount Moriah. This is amazing. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. The author of Hebrews tells us something went through Abraham's mind on that mountain. And it had to be something like this. God, I, I, I don't get this. You promised me this boy. This is the one that the whole nation is to spring from. I couldn't, Sarah and I couldn't have him on our own. You had to, you had to supernaturally enable a pregnancy at like 90, 100 years old, whatever it was. But you did that. And I don't get what's going on today. You've caught, told me to come to this mountain. You've told me now to sacrifice that boy. And so God, I don't know. I mean, if you, if you can give me a son like this, then I'm just going to assume that you can resurrect him from the dead. And so I'm going to follow through this. I trust you. I trusted you one time and you, 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 you did what you said you'd do. I don't have any reason not to trust you, God. Author of Hebrews tells us he reasoned in his mind that God could raise the dead. If you want to see how much I love you, if you want to see how much I trust you, God, I'll do it. And I reckon you'll just raise him from the dead. Wow. That's saving faith. It's not a faith that just talks about loving and trusting God. It's a faith that goes to the nth degree to show that you trust God. James says in verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him. As righteousness, and in the sense of practical proof, James goes on to say in verse twenty-four: "You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. If someone has says they have faith, but no works follow, James says their faith's dead. Their faith's demonic. Their faith's useless. It's not saving." And so we see the example of a dynamic faith in the life of Abraham, but also not just a patriarch. James then goes in verses 25 and 26, he wraps this whole thing up with the example of a prostitute. That's kind of one extreme or the other, isn't it? Let's go to the father of the nation, and now let's go to this Gentile prostitute that got folded in because of her faith, Rahab. We're not going to take time to go there, but in Joshua 2 and also chapter 6. Joshua 2, Joshua 6. There we see Rahab demonstrating her faith by risking her own life to protect the Israelite spies from the officials, the wicked officials, of her own town, Jericho. She'd already heard about the God of Israel. Stories had come how how awesome and powerful he was, and, and, and very clearly she had believed that this God was the true and the living God. before the spies came, but then it was her risk to save the spies that demonstrated her faith, that showed her faith, that practically proved her faith in Yahweh. You see, faith that works proves itself to be true and saving. Verses 25 and 26 from the New Living Translation, Rahab the prostitute is another example She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, so also faith is dead without good works. Verse 26 from the message. The very moment you separate body and spirit, you end up with a corpse. We we all get that, right? When the spirit leaves this body, what's left? Nothing but a corpse. A body. A shell. The person's dead. Because their life-giving spirit has gone. Separate faith and works, and you get the same thing. A corpse. A spiritual corpse. That's all you have. Contemporary English version, verse 26. Anyone who doesn't breathe is dead. I mean, this this are, y- are y'all tracking with this deep science? I mean, this is complicated, right? Anyone who does not breathe is dead. And faith that doesn't do anything is just as dead. You see, if your belief in Jesus does not affect your actions, then you really don't trust Jesus. As James said back in verse 18, now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. You know, we've kind of all got our gifts. You've got faith, I've got deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith, James says, by my deeds. Piper puts it this way, faith alone unites us to Christ for righteousness. And the faith that unites us to Christ for righteousness does not remain alone. It bears the fruit of love. Is that not Galatians 5, 6? What counts is faith expressing itself in love. It must do so or it is dead, demonic, useless faith and does not justify and you know, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul, one of the most, one of the most clear passages on grace, salvation, he, he, he still works this in, doesn't he? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And that's where we stop when we want to make the point about grace, right? But verse 10 says there's more. How do you know that grace transaction has happened? How do you know that radical grace has justified a soul? There will be practical grace on the other side in the form of good works. As verse 10 says, For we are God's handiwork. He's the one that makes us. He's the one that saves us by grace. We are God's handiwork, but He creates us, it says, in Christ Jesus. Why? Why? Why does he do the grace transaction? Why does he radically save us by 100% pure grace, the full work of Christ? Why does he do it? He creates us in Christ Jesus to do good works. Not by good works, not because of good works, but to do good works as the one who's received grace, which God prepared in advance for us To do, You see, God's plan for salvation from before time began was not only to freely forgive and declare righteous on the merits of Jesus, but then to empower and strengthen and indwell by the Holy Spirit and give resurrection power to so that we could do the good works. And he's even got a plan for your good works. From before eternity, he he chose to save you. He decided to save you. And then not only that, he's, he's got a calling on your life for specific good deeds that you are responsible to do as a child of the living God. Not for salvation, but because of salvation. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? Piper, again, the glory of Christ in the gospel is not merely that we are justified when we depend entirely on Christ. That's Galatians, part of it anyway but also that depending entirely on Christ is the power that makes us new, loving people. All that counts in Christ is faith in him that expresses itself through love. That's what it means to be a Christian. Trusting in Jesus for all of our righteousness with the result that that faith shows itself, expresses itself, demonstrates itself with the same love we've received from him. Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14 say it a little bit differently. It says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, Paul's message in Galatians is we were saved by grace and set free from the condemnation of the law. The whole thing of never being able to measure up and be accepted by a holy God. We've been freed from that because in Christ he is our righteousness. He is our redemption. We stand before him perfect, fully. The Bible says we're before holy God. We, if we are in Christ, we are fully accepted in the beloved. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And Paul said that grace sets you free, but it doesn't set you free to do whatever you want to do. It sets you free to do what you learn to want to do, what what God has planned for you to do, what brings glory to the God who saves us by his grace. Luther, even Martin Luther, the great reformer, who, he, he, he kind of had trouble with the book of James. He kind of struggled. He loved Galatians. Kind of struggled with James at points. But even Martin Luther said this, Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it to not be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. Are we clear on what saving faith is this morning? If your belief in Jesus does not affect your actions, then you don't really trust Jesus. And your faith is not saving faith. Chad, I mean, mean, don't we believe in the eternal security of the believer? Absolutely, we do, don't we, Tim? We've been talking about it in Sunday school some. I mean, you're making me question my salvation. Praise the Lord. Good. Why do you think James wrote these verses we read this morning? So that we would examine ourselves, as Peter says, to see if we be in the faith. And because Jesus said in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Who is in heaven? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. You see, if your belief in Jesus does not affect your actions so that we do the will of the Father, then we're just talking. We're just saying, Lord, Lord. And it means nothing. I like the way Tony Evans puts it as we wrap it up this morning. Faith is acting like God is telling the truth. If God is telling the truth and I act like it, a couple things are going to happen, right? If God is telling the truth in the gospel, then I'm going to believe in my heart and confess with my mouth, Romans 10, that Jesus is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead. I'm going to, that's, what's, that's what's going to happen. I'm going to embrace with my heart radical grace in Jesus. But if God's telling the truth... And his spirit's going to come live inside of me. Jesus, as we tell our children, is going to make my heart his home. And when he does that, guess what happens to my life? Practical grace flows out and changes the way I think, the way I live, the decisions I make, the way I I talk to people, the way I interact. What I do, what I don't do, it changes it all. Why? To earn something with God? No. No. To demonstrate my trust in Him. In short, by loving our neighbor as ourself, we show that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. We, we, we show that we're trusting what He's done in Jesus. And so here's the question as we wrap it up and as we come to this table this morning. Do the works of your life, as a professing follower of Jesus, do they justify you? That is, do they practically prove that your professed faith in Christ is real and true and saving? In other words, do the fruits of your life prove the root of faith? In God's grace. Because here's the deal. If your faith is rooted in the grace of God, something grows out of it called good works. Specifically works of love and service for your neighbor. Or has the Lord revealed that your faith is dead? Useless. Even like that of the demons. Because there are no works. There is no fruit to prove what you say you believe about Jesus. Do not take this passage lightly. For your soul's eternity is at stake. If your belief in Jesus does not affect your actions, then you don't really trust Him in a saving way. But hear me. Today can be the day of salvation for you. Maybe you're here and you've never heard anything like this out of the Word of God. Never read the book of James, never seen this. But it's shaking you to the core and you realize that you don't know Jesus. It's just somebody you talk about. It's just something you do socially. You, you, you've never trusted Him because there's no, fruit, there's no change in your life. You, you're still living just the way you've always lived. And today, you need to come to Him and ask Him to save you. He'll do it. You need to come to Him and take the free gift of His grace so that you can go home today knowing there is therefore now no condemnation for me. And so that when you go home today, you will have been raised to walk in newness of life. Not living the way you lived before. But because of the resurrection, empowered to live out the resurrection in victory over sin in your daily life.